You're listening to the free abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. We don't have another decade to waste on climate policy. Ultimately, you can't be investing in new infrastructure on the fossil supply side. You just have to stop. The only way you stop is by stopping. For April 27th, 2022, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. Ever since Russia invaded Ukraine on February 24th, policymakers and energy professionals alike have been challenged to figure out how Western countries could stop funding the war machine by halting their imports of Russian fossil fuels. But considering that Russia is the world's largest exporter of oil, that is simply not something that can be done quickly. Too much of the world depends too much on Russia's oil and gas. Trying to turn off the taps of Russian exports would immediately plunge much of Europe into cold and darkness. It's simply not possible. It is, however, something that must be done as quickly as possible. And so, in the weeks since the invasion, numerous governmental and non-governmental organizations have put forth proposals and plans to articulate how various countries could displace the need for Russian energy exports. And broadly speaking, those proposals basically amount to accelerating the energy transition. Primarily, they advise rapidly building more solar and wind generation, replacing heating, ventilation, and air conditioning, or HVAC systems, with electric heat pumps, and replacing conventional conventional internal combustion engine vehicles with EVs. But many other energy transition strategies, including producing more non-electric carriers for green energy like green hydrogen and ammonia, could also play key roles, as could numerous demand-side technologies. So today we're going to review some of those proposals and try to understand how much of a role they could play in displacing Russian fossil fuel exports, how long those measures will take, and how the entire global arrangement of trade and political alliances may have to be rearranged to accommodate them. Obviously, this is a massive topic that no one could speak to in its entirety, so I have once again organized a three-way panel to help us talk through it in this two-hour interview. To represent how Europe could proceed, we welcome back to the show Tim Gould of the International Energy Agency, or IEA, where he is the principal author of that agency's World Energy Outlook reports. Listeners may remember him from episode 148. Tim will share with us two reports that the IEA has released, outlining how Europe could wean itself off of Russian oil and gas, among other things. To represent the challenge and opportunity for the UK, we welcome back to the show Simon Evans of Carbon Brief, who you may remember from episodes 142 and 143. Simon has been closely tracking various proposals for the UK to quit its consumption of oil and gas, as well as doing his own analysis on how much of its own needs the UK could serve with its own domestic resources if it accelerates its energy transition efforts. And to represent the U.S., we welcome to the show for the first time Rachel Grace, Senior Director of Policy at Rewiring America. Rachel leads their federal and state policy team and will be presenting some of their findings about how the U.S. can accelerate its own energy transition efforts to not only displace Russian imports, but also to mobilize its own resources and capacity to help the rest of the world achieve their objectives to do the same. She has extensive experience in climate policy as well as private sector work and environmental corporate responsibility, and it's a pleasure to welcome her to the show. 
Then in the news segment, we'll update the story on California's emissions rules. We'll check out a massive new offshore wind farm in the UK. We'll ponder Japan's response to a recent earthquake. We'll consider the implications of China's new outlook on coal power. And we'll report Simon's findings about how much of the UK's decision to scrap energy efficiency and renewable energy policies in 2013 has cost UK consumers. But before we go to the interview... Announcements, announcements, announcements... We'd like to extend a warm welcome to our latest corporate group subscribers, AES Corporation, the world leader in lithium-ion-based energy storage, and Alpha Structure, a joint venture of the Carlyle Group, one of the largest global asset management companies, and Snyder Electric, a world leader in energy technology. Welcome all. And now, our conversation with Tim Gould, Simon Evans, and Rachel Grace, recorded April 7, 2022. So let's bring them into the conversation now. Welcome back, Tim and Simon, and welcome, Rachel, to the Energy Transition Show. Thanks very much, Chris. Thank you, Chris. Pleasure to be here. Since Russia invaded Ukraine on February 24th, we energy observers have been suddenly challenged to figure out how Western countries could halt their imports of oil, natural gas, and coal from Russia. But that's a tall order. Just to get us started here, then I'm going to offer some numbers to put this in context. In 2021, the European Union imported 155 billion cubic meters of natural gas from Russia, comprising 45% of EU gas imports and 40% of total EU gas consumption. The OECD Europe also imported about 4.5 million barrels a day of oil and refined products from Russia, which is about 34% of its total oil imports. In 2019, before the pandemic disrupted everything, the European continent as a whole imported about half of its petroleum products from Russia. For its part, the UK imports just 5% of its gas from Russia, but about 24% of its refined oil products, which is mainly diesel fuel, I think, and about 6% of its unrefined crude oil. In total, Russian imports account for about 8% of UK oil demand. And although the U.S. imports no gas from Russia, it did import about 670,000 barrels a day of crude oil and refined products from Russia in 2021, which is about 3% of the U.S. total oil supply. All of which adds up to a lot of money that the West pours into the Russian war machine. The EU bought roughly $108 billion worth of energy from Russia in 2021. In the first month since the invasion, the EU bought about 19 billion euros worth of oil, gas, and coal from Russia, or about 678 million euro per day, according to the Center for Research on Energy and Clean Air. In total, I calculate that Europe, the UK, and the US combined buy in the neighborhood of $700 million a day of energy imports from Russia. Now, clearly, that doesn't make much sense to be applying economic sanctions on Russia with one hand and doling out $700 million a day with the other. But with Russian imports providing such an important share of the fuels that those nations consume every day, displacing them is no easy feat. Still, not trying to displace them isn't really an option either, politically. In addition to the moral and geopolitical imperative of defunding Russia's aggression, there is an economic imperative. Gasoline prices are surging across Europe and the U.S., and oil prices have suddenly become extremely volatile, as concerns about possible interruptions of oil flowing out of Russia collide with fresh uncertainty about demand, as major cities in China, including Shenzhen and Shanghai, have had to go into lockdown due to new waves of COVID infections. In the UK, the average pump price as of April 4th was about 161.91 pence per liter of petrol, which is close to double the US price, although taxes make up a larger share of the UK pump price. 
And then, of course, there are all the climate-related reasons why we embarked upon the energy transition in the first place, which looks suddenly even more sensible now. So today we're going to talk about some of the plans and strategies that have been offered to make it possible for the West to eliminate imports of Russian fossil fuels and to accelerate the energy transition in the process. So with all that context in place, let's dig in. First, I want to start with the challenges. And then I want to discuss some of the possible solutions. And I think I want to start with you, Tim, since the IEA is the lead agency to help the OECD understand the risks that it faces in oil and gas supply. After all, that's the very reason why the IEA was founded after the 1973 Arab oil embargo. And so let's begin with oil. What are some of the complications that Europe faces in trying to do without Russian oil? Well, thanks, Chris. I'm certainly happy to talk about the complications, but it's probably worth remembering, and you've said it already, let's just remember why we're having this conversation. I mean, we're seeing horrific images coming out of Ukraine after the Russian invasion. And like you said, this is being enabled in important ways by the money that Russia receives for fossil fuels imported to Europe. So the task from a European perspective is clear. We need to act as quickly as possible to cut that dependence on Russian energy. But how to do that exactly is obviously a much more complicated matter. And the situation, frankly, is quite fluid. So options that might have been off the table a few weeks ago are now being talked about. But the country situations and preferences across Europe, they really do vary. And of course, what we need to avoid is a situation where measures taken by Europe just sort of increase prices and economic pain for European consumers, but without necessarily reducing revenues to Russia. So it's important to get that right. Why is it tough? It's tough because, as you said, Russia is no ordinary energy player. It's a huge energy player. In the case of oil... And if you take crude and products together, the single largest exporter in the world, and it's a particularly important supplier of oil to Europe. So well over half of Russia's oil exports went to Europe in 2021, mostly crude. And then that, of course, goes into European refineries, but also products. And we need to focus on diesel because I think that's the critical part of this conversation. At the time we're recording this, there are no specific EU-level sanctions on oil imports, or indeed on gas. For the moment, there's an announcement on coal and an indication that measures on oil and potentially on gas are being considered. But even without formal sanctions, Russian oil has quickly become, well, frankly, it's become toxic for many traders, for many international companies. So we're in a bit of a sort of twilight zone at the moment where international players are clearly reluctant to handle Russian exports, but there's no formal restriction on those flows to Europe. And we're already starting to see how this affects markets, and not necessarily in March, because the March supply programs for European refiners had already been agreed and completed before the invasion. But now we're starting to see product shipments come down, shipments to Europe are noticeably lower. We're seeing increased volumes of Russian oil on the water, so in tankers, suggesting that oil is loaded, but it's taking longer to reach destinations or is struggling to find buyers. We're closely monitoring the shipments to alternative buyers not in Europe. Um, we've seen some increases in particular to India in recent weeks. And if the EU were to restrict oil imports, as it's discussing, or if more European countries do, then you're going to have to see some reconfiguration of international flows of crude and products. Some of that sanctioned Russian crude would likely go with a heavy discount to some other buyers, um, some of the crude they normally import would likely be redirected to refineries in Europe. But those are big changes, and that's really unlikely to be a seamless process of change. There's different supply routes, different transport costs, 
shipping times are different. There's some crude quality issues because refineries are set up for specific input crudes. Um, there are term deals. There are all sorts of other things. There may be indeed a lack of willing intermediaries to buy and sell Russian oil if Western trading houses are really refusing to lift Russian barrels. So those are the sorts of things that are in play. Um, from our perspective, need to watch out in particular for strains in diesel markets. Europe's a big importer of diesel and gets a lot of that from Russia. Um, there's also a particularly challenging situation for some countries in Central Europe that get their oil by pipeline from Russia. There's the Druzhba pipeline that splits and goes into northern and southern parts of Central Europe. The southern branch of that pipeline is one to watch. And I think probably a final consideration, and you mentioned it in your question about the role of the IEA. So we coordinate a safety net of oil stocks precisely for this kind of situation. So each member country holds some stocks in reserve that can be released if there's a disruption to supply. And we've agreed to big coordinated releases of oil onto the market to ease the pressure and reduce some of these risks. So it's a sort of, sort of slightly ambiguous situation where we, overall we have to move away from oil on the journey to net zero. But today's events really remind us that this could be quite a bumpy ride. So it's very important to have you know, buffers and safety nets in place. Indeed. And on the refined products, I mean, when we're talking about a global flow and consumption of oil of, you know, more or less 100 million barrels per day globally, you can reject Russian distillates, you can reject Russian diesel consumption in one country or another, but then the rest of the world has to flow around that, right? So even if we have the U.S. and Europe rejecting Russian distillates like diesel and fuel oil, those might then be sold to South America, Africa, and Asia, and then Europe has to switch over to unsanctioned products from the U.S., China, and India, and the Middle East, and it has to all keep flowing. So this is a very complex question. And as you say, it's not a uniform landscape of refining out there. There's different refiners that are set up to process different types of crude. And so you can't just swap in one type of crude for another willy-nilly. And all of this has its own geopolitical consequences. But I'm glad you mentioned that coordinated release that the IEA organized for its reserves. On April 1st, the IEA member countries did its coordinated oil release announcement. And then two days later, President Biden announced a release of a million barrels a day of crude for the next six months, or rather starting in May. So that's 180 million barrels, the largest release ever from the U.S. Strategic Petroleum Reserve, sometimes known as the SPR. So clearly the OECD countries are willing to go well beyond sanctions to combat any shortfall in Russian oil. Is this the first time the IEA members have conducted a coordinated action like this, Tim? So what we've seen over the last few weeks has been the fourth and fifth times that IEA countries have agreed these kinds of releases. There's been releases in the past for sort of natural disasters, sort of Hurricane Katrina and so on. There was a release in response to some supply disruptions from Libya. But this for the IEA is very big. And the initial release was 60 million barrels a day. The Subsequent release is 120 million barrels. And then some member countries, including, of course, the US, have agreed additional releases on top of those. Rachel, with respect to oil, there are similar complications for the US, aren't there? Yes. Thank you, Chris. Per your question, you know, although the US did not import a large amount of Russian oil relative to the EU, 
it is still complicated to move supply around given global market dynamics, as you mentioned. So North America's refiners have tight relationships with markets in Central and South America. U.S. refiners would have to start sending less of their refined products south in order to send more to Europe. And then you have the question of where do Central and South America then go to buy the fuels that they would need? Mm -hmm. And looking into the past, when the U.S. embargoed oil imports from Iraq in the 1990s and from Iran and Venezuela in the 2010s, the U.S. was able to turn to other exporters, particularly from the Middle East, but also from Russia, to make up for that lost supply. This time, neither Saudi Arabia nor U.S. shale producers seem poised or willing to make up the loss of Russian imports, and the sanctions on Iran and Venezuela have yet to be lifted. I also just want to note that here at Rewiring America, we're largely focused on the demand side of the energy equation. And in the case of complications for U.S. or EU oil and gas consumption, even if all the oil and gas could be rerouted, the inefficiencies that Tim mentioned and the disruption to the system would likely lead to more global price volatility. And one thing that this crisis has made clear is that even for a net oil exporter like the U.S., the volatility of oil and gas prices will still reach that exporters, consumers, their families and businesses. So meaning that even if all these nuances of the world market supply were resolved for American, European or UK households, they would still bear the price shocks of the current crisis and any future oil and gas related crises, which leads us to what we need to do today and to find a solution that addresses both the short to medium term needs, but is also long lasting. Indeed. Simon, there are some serious economic considerations here too, aren't there? Especially since the UK has already seen very high prices for petrol and other refined oil products, and even some spot shortages over the past six months that were kind of making the news headlines there for a while. And that was happening before the Russian invasion. Yeah, thanks, Chris. So what we've seen is that global oil markets were already tight before the invasion, and um, effectively the global economy bouncing back after the COVID pandemic and lockdowns. And combined with that, um, investment in oil and gas production has been down over the past five or so years, following a period of low oil prices. There's been sort of an interesting debate around that because the timing kind of matches up a little bit with you know the timing of the Paris Agreement in 2015. And some people have tried to blame the Paris Agreement, you know, the energy transition more generally for the fact that there's been a tight oil and gas market. You know, I think Realistically, the the swing in low oil prices has been a much bigger driver there. But it's interesting that that sparks that debate. So, yeah, obviously, with the market being tight, you know, that does make it difficult to just turn off the taps. You know, we've seen repeated statements from the top levels of the German government, Germany's vice chancellor and economic minister, Robert Harbeck, saying that an abrupt termination of imports from Russia could plunge Germany into recession. Um, it's notable that he's saying that he's a green politician. We've had similar statements from other members of the German cabinet. But as he mentioned, certain things that seemed unthinkable are becoming thinkable. Schultz, quite earlier in the crisis, talked about a Zeitenwender and turning point, literally. And I think it was viewed at the time as really about security and defence policy and a shift in Germany's stance on that front. But I think it applies also to energy as well. So, you know, even the fact that the EU is now seriously countenancing an embargo on Russian oil and gas imports, that couldn't have happened a month ago. So we've certainly seen a shift. 
Okay, so so now that we understand the dimensions of the immediate challenges we all face in oil supply, let's move on and talk about how the West can start eliminating its imports of Russian oil. The IEA has put forward a 10-point plan to reduce or eliminate the OECD's imports of oil from Russia. So let's start with that. Tim, what are the headline features of that plan? So the first thing, if you want to get off oil, then there's really no shortcuts and indeed no secret about what you need to do. So electrification, EVs, efficiency, recycling, all the things that we know about and which you've discussed on this show as well. And so that remains the agenda for policymakers, industry, for consumers, and it's more important than ever to follow through on that. But the work that we did on this 10-point plan is much more near-term and much more related to a specific problem that may arise later this year. So on the demand side, oil consumption in Europe, and it's true in the United States, it goes up as we approach the summer. Whereas over the next few months, we could see a major reduction in Russian supply. And we're unlikely to have big sort of increments in output from elsewhere. So clearly there's going to be some extra oil coming from the US, from Canada, from Brazil, from Norway. We have the IEA stock release that we've talked about. We'll have some additional from OPEC, perhaps some from Iran, but the geopolitics there are, of course, extremely uncertain. But the bottom line is that if you have a serious reduction in Russian supply, you're not going to have a sufficient alternative non-Russian sources to cover that potential gap. So we have to be prepared also on the demand side. And that's the reason why we produced this 10-point plan. And it focuses on ways that we can, in a sense, reduce oil demand in a hurry, particularly from transport. So the short-term actions are all about reducing the amount of oil consumed by cars, by reducing speed limits, working from home, occasional limits on access to city centers, cheaper public transport, more carpooling, other initiatives, greater use of high-speed rail, virtual meetings and so on. But we didn't dream up these actions out of nowhere. These are all things that have been implemented at various times and in various parts of the world. You see them in many parts of Europe also to cope with spikes in air pollution already. So these are reflected in the things that members of the IEA already have had to develop. They already have these oil demand restraint plans as part of their emergency response measures. And a lot of them are issues that consumers in the end are affected by alongside measures from governments. And we estimate that if they're carried out in full, and this is for advanced economies, then if you follow those measures, you lower oil demand within four months by around 2.7 million barrels a day. So that's the equivalent of more than, more than one third of Russia's exports. How does that 2.7 million barrels a day of potential reduction compare to the total imports from Russia? So in 2021, total Russian export was about 7.5 million barrels a day. So of around five and a half of that went to the OECD countries in Europe. Okay, so you're talking basically cutting about in half the consumption from Russia in four months. Of the Russian oil that arrives in Europe. Yeah. yeah. So naturally enough, it's a global balance. So these effects are felt everywhere. And the effects would be much larger if some of these measures were adopted elsewhere. But this is like a safety valve on the demand side in case the situation becomes even more serious than it is today on the oil market. Right. Simon, what are the UK's options for displacing refined products? Again, I think it's mainly diesel that it imports from Russia. Yeah, so I mean, I'd actually like to turn this question around, if you don't mind. All right. So the UK has already announced a ban on Russian oil imports by the end of this year. 
Um, what's quite interesting about that is that no one's really been talking about how we're going to achieve that. <laughs> and I personally would argue that the UK wouldn't have announced that if it didn't think it would be relatively easy to do. And, <laughs> um, you know, obviously the UK is a much smaller amount of demand compared to the EU as a whole. So in terms of all of that complicated rerouting of oil and oil products, it's not such a big ask. But the other thing that's interesting about the UK is that there's been close to zero debate about how to reduce oil demand, in contrast to the attention on Russian gas, which we've had quite a lot of in the press. But as you already set out at the top, that's actually less important proportionally for the UK. Um, the other thing is that the government has very explicitly and directly ruled out the sorts of measures that Tim discussed in, in the, the IEA oil plan. Um, and we've also seen in, in the, the Chancellor's kind of spring statement, a mini budget, if you like, um, he made the biggest ever cut in fuel duty. Um, and around the same time, public transport fares have seen inflation busting increases. So effectively, the government's pushing in exactly the opposite direction to what it would need to be doing if it was serious about cutting demand for oil as part of kind of a bigger effort to stop sending Putin so much money. To the extent that there's been debate in the UK on where to get oil, it's been stuff like Prime Minister Boris Johnson going on a trip to Saudi Arabia, which apparently failed in his hopes to kind of ask them to increase oil production and exports. And there's also been a big debate about getting more oil and gas out of the North Sea, despite the fact that the government's own figures show it takes several decades on average from granting new exploration licences to actually pumping oil to customers out of the ground. And the North Sea has been in decline for years, right? <laughs> Right. Yeah, the North Sea is a mature basin. And we're also in the midst of this debate about how exactly production from the North Sea can be compatible with the UK's net zero target. Mm -hmm. So the government's proposed what it's called a climate checkpoint, which is under consultation at the moment. It's very unclear how that would work. But at the same time, that has to somehow marry up or temper the current legislated goal, which is to maximise economic recovery. So given we're already maximising recovery, it's not entirely clear how we could go beyond that. Certainly not in the very short term, if there were to be an interruption in Russian supplies. And the government's also announced plans for an increase in EV charging points, didn't it? So, yeah. The UK's got this proposed ban on the sale of combustion engine cars from 2030. And as part of plans to kind of ramp things up towards that, they've announced quite recently plans for a, a tenfold increase in the number of public charge points for electric vehicles. What I would say about that is, you know, actually, it's not a response to the current crisis. It's something that's been in the works for a while. It's part of the existing plan. And it's also already been criticised for falling well short of where the EV market's heading. Mm. Um, sales of EVs are far, far ahead of expectations and currently due to reach greater than 50% market share within the next five years. Mm. That is significant. All right. Well, Rachel, what are some of the specific challenges we have to grapple with here in the U.S. with respect to doing without imports of Russian oil and refined products like gasoline and diesel fuel? Yeah, there have been a lot of calls for U.S. producers, especially the frackers, to ramp up production quickly to bring a new oil supply to market. But that's not something that happens on the scale of weeks or even months, especially since Russia invaded Ukraine at a time when 
U.S. producers were focusing more on profitability than growth. And this trend has continued during this crisis with stock buybacks, as we've read in the news recently. This means that simply drilling more is not going to strengthen the energy security of our EU allies or ourselves in the U.S. in a time frame that would affect our ability to respond to the Ukrainian crisis, nor to reduce the price shocks that families are experiencing. So if we look at why this is the case, U.S. politicians and oil industry lobbyists included, they do make a lot of bold pronouncements, but actually mobilizing the rigs and the workers takes a lot of time and money. And that money hasn't been as available or liquid for the last couple of years as it was during the boom times of the fracking revolution a decade ago. Add to that fact that several of the major frackers are publicly expressing that they're more interested in returning profits right now to investors than increasing production. Mm -hmm. So, you know, in February, Scott Sheffield, the CEO of Pioneer Natural Resources, which is a major fracking operator, said that his company would not increase production now to help the U.S. do without Russian oil because his investors wanted and probably demanded to see returns and not growth. So, Quote unquote, he said, whether it's $150 oil, $200 oil, or $100 oil, we're not going to change our growth plans. So the question again returns to where to import the unfinished oil from then. And there are complications, which I think you mentioned earlier, around the types of crude oil that U.S. refineries are equipped to process. Not all crude oil is the same, and refineries have specialties, if you will. So this means there's limited capacity for processing the types of oil we might try to replace Russian oil with. Mm. And then lastly, there are 5.3 million U.S. homes that actually use oil for their heating. And oil is typically a pretty expensive way of heating one's home. But that fact is especially true right now. So while the market and our leaders are trying to smooth out all these really thorny questions, these homes are experiencing all these effects of these complicated dynamics when they're just trying to weigh, you know, do I pay for my heating last winter or do I pay for another essential good? And heating, unlike, let's say, an extra road trip, it's not a discretionary expense. It's an essential expense that directly affects quality of life as well as public health. And as we saw from President Biden's recent announcements of releasing oil from the SPR, there's little that the U.S. supply can do to affect the global prices of oil and gas for consumers. So all this is to say that continued reliance on fossil fuels will just result in higher costs for consumers for the foreseeable future. Yeah, and those are all well-made points. I mean, even if the U.S. could increase its production at will, that doesn't necessarily mean that U.S. prices for fuel oil and diesel and so on would be significantly lower. And even if they were lower, they would have to be lower globally, essentially. So... All right. Well, let's turn now to gas because there are some fairly unique aspects to that dependency. The IEA has also put forward a 10-point plan to cut Europe's dependence on Russian gas. Tim, what are some of the key elements of that plan? We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are typically 60 to 90 minutes long. When you become a full annual subscriber, you'll get two new complete episodes each month, access to our entire back catalog, extensive show notes, interview transcripts, the text of the news items for each episode, and access to our exclusive job board. Your premium members-only subscription will work in all apps and players that support podcast feeds, including Apple Podcasts and Pocket Casts, so you can easily listen from your mobile device on the go. 
The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free, and always will be, so if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information possible, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. The Energy Transition Show is entirely supported by listener subscriptions. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and click the Become a Member button. Annual subscriptions, which include full access to our entire back catalog of full-length episodes, are just $60 a year. Monthly subscriptions are $6.99 a month and give you access to the two most recent episodes. Single episodes can be purchased for $7 each. We also offer discounted annual subscriptions for individual university students and professors, as well as group licenses for companies, nonprofits, and universities. So join us today and support our ad-free podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. In March, President Biden completed one more step in his ongoing efforts to undo the damage that Trump did to U.S. climate policy. This story actually started in 1970 when Congress passed the Clean Air Act. Back then, the smog in Los Angeles was so bad you could barely see across the street sometimes, and California had to do something about it. But it just wasn't politically possible to set national vehicle standards that would address the problem, so Congress gave California the authority to set its own vehicle emission standards. That move essentially turned the U.S. into two different markets for automobiles, and due to the sheer size of California, automakers had to start making at least some vehicles that would comply with the California emission standard in order to be able to sell any cars there, vehicles that are sometimes called compliance cars. Years later, a few states followed California's emission standard as they too started experiencing intolerable levels of air pollution caused by tailpipe emissions. Then in 2009, President Barack Obama set the federal auto emission standards to match the California standards, which would have required passenger vehicles to get an average fuel economy of 51 miles per gallon by 2025, up from roughly 38 miles per gallon at the time. In response, the auto industry started aggressively ramping up electric vehicle production. But then Mr. Trump revoked the higher standard in 2020, even over the objections of some major auto manufacturers who had already retooled to meet the new standard. Then in late 2021, President Biden effectively reinstated and slightly strengthened the Obama-era rule with a new federal standard that requires new vehicles to average 55 miles per gallon by 2026. And then, in March of this year, the Biden administration finally restored California's legal authority to set its own auto pollution and mileage rules that are tighter than federal standards. The reinstatement of California's authority is expected to once again prompt automakers to focus on zero-emission vehicles, which, in practice, means full battery electric vehicles, because, as we explained in the news of episode 169, hydrogen fuel cell vehicles lost the race to full battery electric vehicles years ago. Today, 17 other states and the District of Columbia have adopted the California rules, which effectively makes them the national standards. Further, 12 other states are following California's mandate to sell only zero-emission vehicles after 2035. But President Biden's current goal is for half of all new vehicles sold in the U.S. to be electric by 2030, but that goal may be increased as California continues to set more ambitious rules of its own. Item 2. About 27 kilometers off the northeast coast of Scotland, in the North Sea, the world's deepest fixed-bottom offshore wind farms is being built. 
When completed, the 1.1 gigawatt Sea Green wind farm will feature 100. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Chris Nelder creates the show, Kevin Melsheimer edits it and makes us all sound brilliant, and Justin Ritchie produces our listener experience. Mike Sugar composed and produced our theme music, and you can find him at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.